Welcome to this episode of Anesthesia on Air from the Royal College of Anesthetists. Uh, my name is Mike Grocott. I'm a professor of anesthesia uh, and consultant down in Southampton. Uh, and it's uh, my pleasure today to introduce uh, Professor Thomas Smith. Uh, Tom has just come off stage from uh, giving his oration as the Royal College of Anesthetists Macintosh Professor. Uh, and I had the pleasure of writing his citation. So I do, I do have a bit of background colour on Tom and, and his journey from uh, Australia via Oxford to uh, King's College London. But Tom, do, can, can you flesh out the story a little bit? Tell us, tell us the story of, of Tom Smith. Thanks very much, Mike. Yes, uh, so I am Australian. Uh, went to medical school uh, back in Adelaide. And I came over to Oxford to do a PhD, actually, uh, and spent quite a long time in Oxford doing hypoxia physiology research alongside uh, training in anaesthetics. Uh, and then about six years ago, I uh, moved down to London, uh, where I'm a consultant anaesthetist at Guy's and St. Thomas's. Uh, but my main uh, part of my week is spent at King's College London as an academic, uh, where I head up aerospace medicine research. And, and you, um, you played that all down very nicely. But so you came over, I think, as a Rhodes Scholar and on the way you had a Churchill Scholarship. Can you tell us a little bit about those? Yes, uh, I was very fortunate to receive a Churchill Fellowship uh, in Australia, which allowed me to spend some time at NASA, actually, doing a rotation in aerospace medicine at Kennedy Space Centre uh, with NASA at Cape Canaveral. Uh, and I did that before moving on to Oxford, uh, which is where I took up a Rhodes Scholarship, which I was also very fortunate uh, to receive back in Australia. And that allowed me to come to Oxford uh, and do my PhD, or DPhil, as it's called in Oxford terminology. And, and you worked with... Um, some proper clever people in Oxford and by, by clever I mean I mean they got Nobel Prizes there is that right? That's right yes so the lab I was in um, run by uh, Peter Robbins and Keith Dorrington uh, interested in uh, respiratory physiology and in particular quite a lot of hypoxia physiology and during that time we were really the human end of what uh, a lot of people were working on in Oxford under Peter Ratcliffe a professor of medicine uh, looking at oxygen sensing and oxygen physiology at the cellular level so we were, in a sense, doing the human experiments uh, related to that work. And yes, that, that's the work for which um, he very famously received the Nobel Prize uh, several years ago uh, for his discoveries related to HIF, hypoxia-inducible factor, which uh, is really the mechanism by which um, cells in the body sense and respond to, uh, to changing oxygen levels. Which was a great result, obviously, for Oxford, but also for, for British science in general. Your presentation today was entitled Anesthetists and Aerospace Medicine in a New Era of Human Spaceflight. Can you, can you talk us through some of the basics? So definitions, first of all, what, what is aerospace medicine? So aerospace medicine is the branch of, of medicine that deals with uh, the physiology and medical aspects of flight. So uh, it's uh, combining aviation and spaceflight. Uh, so it, it includes things that we're more familiar with as anaesthetists, like uh, air ambulance work, aeromedical critical care. But actually, it's much broader than that. Uh, things like pilot medical certification, uh, fitness to fly, uh, and also uh, military aviation, uh, and of course, spaceflight, uh, where there's some really quite extreme things going on physiologically and potentially medically. Uh, so it's a, a uh, quite, quite a um, mature specialty, actually, in, in many parts of the world. It's, it's a GMC-recognized specialty in the UK, uh, and actually uh, quite a few anaesthetists were involved in the development of it uh, and its um, recognition as a specialty. And, I mean, I think we, we used to think about space and going up in aeroplanes as quite 
different and distinct things and that that margin's getting a bit blurred now so te- so first of all where does where does space begin technically and um you know talk talk a little bit about that blurring of the sort of the start of commercial space flight well it's actually an interesting question where does space begin uh, so Technically, probably the best answer that most people go with is at 100 kilometers altitude, uh, the uh, von Karman line, uh, because beyond that, there's not really much atmosphere. Uh, so that, that's what most people go with. However, uh, not everyone. And actually, the US Air Force definition, which uh, some others in the industry like to use, is 80 kilometers or 50 miles, I think, because it was a round number. Um, but either way, you have to go pretty high for it to be counted as space uh, rather than uh, more typical uh, aviation. Uh, flights and yes there are changes uh, happening and over the last couple of years especially we've seen the advent of uh, commercial suborbital spaceflight uh, which is uh, where people who are private citizens so members of the public uh, with sufficient means so it is at the moment for wealthy people can pay for a ticket and go to space uh, on a suborbital flight where they they reach space uh, but don't go into orbit so quite short flights at the moment uh, and the, the big difference there being that as opposed to traditional astronauts who are very carefully selected, highly trained, uh, all sorts of medical problems are screened out. Um, and uh, if they do develop medical problems, then they don't get to fly. Uh, so that's a very different population. And there have only been about 600 people go to space. Uh, so a very select population. And that's all changing. Uh, over the last two years, 50 people have been on uh, these commercial suborbital space flights uh, since they started. Um, and what are the particular challenges not not only the suborbital flights but more generally in terms of the the challenges to human physiology of space flight so um the reason people are taking these flights normally is because they want to be in space and experience weightlessness as well uh, it's where they you can take your, your selfies um, and do somersaults and experience being in space um, the view is by all accounts pretty spectacular in a way that for many people is life-changing uh, it, it's so life-changing that that effect has a name it's the overview effect and uh, the, the chap who coined that term uh, interviews people who've been to space uh, which used to be uh, government astronauts but actually now are people paying for these flights and he's been finding that actually they're having at least as much effect on people even though they're quite short uh, partly because the whole point of it is to look outside um, so you get your weightlessness and your experience of, of space flight. But what you also have, which may not be what you're after, is uh, high G acceleration during the launch and the reentry phases. And that's probably uh, more challenging physiologically for most people. Uh, so that, that's something that, that is just part of the physics, really. You can't get around it. So uh, high G forces, uh, technically high G acceleration on launch and reentry, fairly short phases, but actually quite high levels in magnitude. Right. And, and have you personally had an opportunity to to experience some of this, either in a, in a centrifuge or the, the so-called vomit comet? I have, yes. So uh, the research I've been doing over the last uh, few years uh, actually used both platforms. So did some experiments on parabolic aircraft flights uh, with NASA in Houston, where uh, it's a specially modified aircraft, although any aircraft can fly a big parabola. Uh, but these ones have a bit more padding and the seats taken out. Um, and you get in that case, 20 seconds of zero gravity as you go over the top of a big parabola, basically. Uh, and that, that's the one that is well known as the, the vomit comet because you do 40 flights, uh, 40 parabolas in a flight uh, and four flights in a week uh, is a typical campaign. And quite a lot of people do find that uh, they, they need to reach for the bag at some point. Uh, I must say that it's, to, to me, 
one of the most wonderful uh, sensations I've ever had uh, because it really does feel like gravity is just being switched on and switched off. They keep the windows shut uh, so that you can't see outside because that helps to reduce the uh, levels of motion sickness. And the change in the uh, pitch angle of the aircraft as it sort of dives and, and pulls up and dives again tends to be just below what you can detect um, in the vestibular apparatus. So you're not really aware of the aircraft going up and down. You're just aware of the vector through the floor. So in other words, gravity switch on, switch off. So it's really quite freaky, but uh, surprisingly natural sensation. You can actually uh, do it as a tourist. You can pay for these flights and you can even get married on them. So that's the, uh, that's the zero G. And then the centrifuge, we've been doing quite a lot of centrifuge studies actually the last few years uh, using a human centrifuge to uh, generate um, high g-forces. Again, uh, more technically, uh, not a force, an acceleration, so high g-acceleration, uh, where you're in a gondola out, out on the outside of, a, of an arm, on a long arm centrifuge, and it's actually the change in the uh, rotational velocity that, that generates that uh, applied g so we've been uh, simulating suborbital flights, at least the launch and re-entry phases, and uh, looking at the physiology. And so that that one's a bit different. It, it's it's a little bit more like a roller coaster ride, uh, which is what I expected from the parabolic flights, but it wasn't like that at all. It was uh, really much smoother. But the centrifuge, it, you wouldn't describe as smooth. You do get squashed. Fascinating to hear actually what it's what it's like from a, a personal perspective. Now I think I'm going to come back to some of this, and I'm going to come back in particular to the role that anaesthetists and paraoptic physicians can play. But um, the, apart from the general commentary, you, you presented some pretty smart science today. So can you, can you tell us a little bit about what, how you're using these environments to understand more about human physiology? Uh, yes. Uh, so the, on the centrifuge, um, what we were able to do in the first main study was actually using uh, what we call the old centrifuge in the UK, uh, a magnificent machine going since 1955 at Farnborough. Uh, now decommissioned. We were the last team to use it for research, which was a great privilege. But it was well designed for research because you could fit a lot of equipment uh, in the gondola. But what it, what it couldn't do was uh, dynamically replicate particular profiles, for example, uh, launches and, and re-entries, where the G vector is changing. So you get quite a static exposure, but that's quite a helpful way of uncovering the underlying physiology and characterizing those responses. So we did really detailed respiratory physiology measurements under G to try to get to the bottom of what actually happens to the lungs when you're exposed to the sorts of uh, high G that you might experience on a suborbital flight. Uh, and that included uh, looking at things you might imagine, so ventilation, oxygen saturation, but also some of the more sophisticated measurements um, thanks to colleagues uh, at King's, so Dr. Caroline Jolly and colleagues who's a chest physician who uh, they use nasoesophageal catheters to measure diaphragm EMG, giving you um, an index of the brain's signal to breathe, so the neural breathing drive, how hard the brain is telling you to breathe effectively, and also uh, uh, alongside that, an index of work of breathing. Uh, we also used uh, electrical impedance tomography, which uh, involves circumferential electrodes around the chest, and they're able to generate a picture of where the airflow goes, so regional distribution of ventilation. It's not something that's made it into clinical practice to a great extent yet, um, although uh, the companies developing this, uh, I think, would like to change that. Uh, but as a research tool, we, we found it really quite useful. And we did blood gases as well, which was, uh, for me as an anaesthetist, you always want a blood gas, don't you? Um, so we managed to achieve that on the centrifuge too. Fantastic. And, and uh I mean, obvious applications in terms of spaceflight itself. What, what, what about um, 
the, the sort of indirect clinical applications of what you're learning? Well, what I was quite interested about in parallel with the, the application for the uh, spaceflight setting is just what this tells us about the lungs and gravity. There's a lot of debate. Uh, you know, scientific debates can become quite hotly contested uh, in their own way. And this is one of them. How does gravity affect the lungs? You know, how precisely does it influence uh, what goes on? It, is it that gravity is a major driving factor between behind you know the distribution of ventilation perfusion and the matching of those or if it, is it just sort of a secondary factor that's overlaid on top of other things like the anatomical uh, distribution of airways and, and the vasculatures and these are the sorts of things that can be quite difficult to study but one way to do it is either to increase the g or to remove it um, so that's one of the reasons for doing this work was uh, actually to tell us more about fundamental lung physiology uh, so th that's where the uh, the parabolic flight work came in actually I was quite interested to see whether uh, it's possible to detect any subtle impairment of gas exchange under microgravity. We know that astronauts don't get really hypoxic, um, but uh, we were trying to, to detect something a bit more subtle, which we may or may not have seen. Uh, it's a bit, it was a bit hard to know, actually, in the end. But, um, the, you know, one of the best ways to know how gravity affects the lungs, of course, is to remove it um, or re remove its effects. Uh, so that was the aim there. And, yes, in the lecture, I, I talked about the fact that uh, we use gravity uh, or at least we, we have to put up with it sometimes too in the clinical setting. So many anaesthetists will be familiar with the patient who uh, is either it's steep head down tilt because that's uh, what the surgeons want um, and you start to get concerned about their lungs and how good their gas exchange is and that, that, that uh, orientation. Uh, also um, proning, so that, that's a really obvious one in the critical care setting uh, where therapeutically using gravity to try to achieve a benefit uh, by proning patients. Uh, so lung physiology, we all know uh, it's in, important and actually gravity matters a lot on Earth, uh, not just in space. We just don't always think about it. So I, I won't give you, ask you to give us a full explanation of the effects of gravity on lung physiology. I think that's probably a lecture for another day. But I will come back to this. Um, well, from, from my experience, there's an awful lot of anaesthetists involved in uh, space physiology, aerospace physiology. Um, I, I, I'm interested. Is that is that your experience, and, if, and why do you think that is? Yes, I, I think that's true, and I think it comes back to physiology actually. Um, and anaesthetists, I, I don't think we always realise that that we really are the experts in physiology because we have to be. Uh, you know, our job is to apply, manipulate physiology, uh, and so that that means that it's it's natural for us to get involved in areas where uh, physiology is. Uh, under stress or uh, directing you know the outcome um, so extremes of, of gravity extremes of uh, oxygenation uh, pressure those sorts of things there's a lot of overlap um, and I do tend to find actually that anaesthetists uh, are quite curious about this kind of thing and I, I think that probably comes back to our, uh, our sort of foundation as physiologists. Yeah, I, I, kind of, I always think of us and the, the sort of anaesthetist intensivist crossover as the clinical integrative physiologists sort of really thinking a lot of time about how the lungs and the heart and the brain and everything else interacts. Where do you think uh, where do you think the field is is going um, and, and particularly you know, opportunities for um, people who might be listening, anaesthetists and perioperative physicians? And, and a, a slight nudge to the answer, but, you know, are we going to Mars? Is that is that something we should be planning for? 
Well, so as far as where the field is going, I think for me, what's really interesting, probably for any doctor, is the fact that you've got normal people now going to space. And I, I say normal, I know that people don't always think of it as normal because they're very wealthy people. Uh, so, um, but but apart from that, <laughs> uh, you know, th- th- these these are not carefully selected sort of medically pristine individuals. These are people with all the sorts of medical problems that all our patients have uh, and us too. So um, it is it's it is a new era in that sense. Uh, and it, it makes it really quite interesting for doctors to get involved. And I think, like we said, anesthetists with our, our foundation in physiology and our curiosity about physiology, we're, we're well placed. We're also very used to being in a situation where we have to take somebody who has medical problems or is elderly or is in, in other ways perhaps vulnerable and is facing a major physiological insult and we have to assess how well they're going to get through that and what we can do to optimize it. So I think that translates from perioperative medicine uh, as well. So I think we're well placed. And yes, uh, in answer to the question, how we go to Mars? Yes. Um, I, I got an email the other day uh, inviting uh, people to join the panel panel uh, exploring what experiments we're going to do when people get to Mars. Um, it, it's happening. Uh, the next moon landings are uh, only a couple of years away. Um, and, you know, the, the, the spacecraft for that are, are built or being built. Um, it's, it's all happening. Uh, so we'll, people will be back on the moon uh, really quite soon. Uh, and uh, Mars a, a bit longer after that, but it's absolutely happening. Uh, and the, the, con- the contracts are being signed. Um, so uh, it's, it's an exciting time, actually, uh, to be getting into aerospace medicine uh, because things are changing. I mean, it's extraordinarily exciting, um, and particularly for, for clinical integrative physiologists like us. So if, if um, I, I suspect I'm a bit old for this, but if for the sort of, for, for folks coming through training, for medical students even listening, what what's their route to get involved, to get, get engaged with all this? Well, that's changing as well, and the opportunities are increasing. I think if people are really, really interested in making it a career, and I think the number of people in that category is, in, is really growing, actually, um, then... Uh, as I mentioned, it is aerospace medicine is a recognised specialty, and one of the ways into it is anaesthetics. So have a Google; you can find the curriculum, and the pathways, and so on. And, and I know that that has started to happen, uh, not just people from other backgrounds, but from anaesthetics too. Um, so that's uh, that's a very serious way of getting involved is is to make it your career. Um, but there are other ways too, and there are uh, all sorts of courses uh, that are available. Quite a few of them at King's and uh, shameless promotion there, but um, we are a major centre for this work. And so we have all sorts of courses available, ranging from introductory online uh, courses uh, where you uh, do it at your own pace through to our, our flagship diploma for doctors. It's a professional qualification. And that one is a serious commitment because you have to be there in person for six months. Um, uh, but it certainly is uh, a way of getting to do everything. You, you ride the centrifuge, you you, uh, you experience uh, what there is to experience. Um, so, and, and there are other courses in between, actually, for people who uh, perhaps uh, want to try things out without committing quite so much. Uh, so that that's certainly one of the ways. And then the other way is research. And actually, when I was a, a medical student, the reason I got into all this, I, I knew I was interested in aviation and spaceflight, and there wasn't really a, a pathway or an outlet for that. And it just happened that in Adelaide, where I, I was, uh, the Air Force, the Royal Australian Air Force, had its Institute of Aviation Medicine, and the doctors there let me come and hang around for a bit. Um, and they encouraged me that it, you know the way to get into this was research. So that was one of the main reasons I ended up coming to Oxford to do a PhD. Uh, so research is a really good way as well. 
So, because uh, this is a, a Royal College uh, podcast, so I must emphasise that other providers are available, yeah. but Kings are extremely good at what they do. Um, and, what, and what about the international organisations that that, that uh, I think are quite welcoming of of relatively early career people with an interest? Yes, absolutely. So, um, in the UK, uh, the Royal Aeronautical Society has a uh, next generation aerospace medicine group, uh, which is really really active. Uh, we had a, our symposium last week. Uh, where some of the next generation uh, got to present their their work. Um, then internationally, the Aerospace Medical Association, based in the US but but covering the world, is probably the most well-known one. They have a big conference each year, and it's relatively cheap to join as a student or uh, as a registrar. Uh, and they have uh, a sort of resident organisation, as as the Americans call it, uh, that you can join as well. So they're really quite active. Uh, there's a, another organisation that is. Uh, the International Academy of Aviation and Space Medicine. Um, to join that, it's for people at the other end of their career, so uh, more at the senior end, but uh, they do hold a conference every year that uh, people might be interested in, in going to. And again, that's one of the things I did early on. It happened to be in Australia. Uh, so I got to go and met all sorts of people um, who uh, said things like, if you're ever in Houston, you know, come and look me up. And then I held them to it, which I don't think they were expecting. So, Tom, re- really interesting. Um and, and how does it work uh, if something goes badly? So so if in space, I mean, situations like, I guess, resuscitation or needing to anaesthetise for an acute medical emergency, what are, what are the particular challenges then? Thanks, Mike. Yes, so it is an interesting question. How do you anaesthetise somebody in space? Uh, and it hasn't happened yet. Um, it's never been required. But clearly, uh, there are a lot of contingency planning goes into what to do if an astronaut is injured or is sick and needs, as you say, resuscitation or intubation uh, and uh, critical care support. Um, So one of the things to consider is the fact that physiologically, uh, the fact that you're in space means that you're very deranged already. uh, And the longer you've been there, probably the worse it is. Uh, And so it's probably quite a dangerous thing to do. Um, But then again, that's what we're used to as anaesthetists, uh, more and more with our patients. So uh, if you can get over that one, the next question is, well, what equipment have you got? Uh, And so I can tell you that because... The International Space Station medical kit, uh, which a lot of workers got into, deciding what to take and what, what not to take. Uh, and there's clearly very severe limits on what you can have and how much it weighs to get it up there is the main problem. So uh, there is some equipment. There, there is uh, a laryngoscope. Uh, I think you've got a couple of ET tubes, uh, a ventilator, an ILMA. Uh, and then there are some drugs as well. So the ketamine is the induction uh, and maintenance drug available. There's some IV opioid uh, there are no muscle relaxants, so, uh, and then probably more important than it than that is that there's no anaesthetist. Uh, there may be a doctor because some of the astronauts are from a medical background, uh, but that's more just a question of luck rather than uh, planning. I think it would be very challenging, certainly for somebody who's not medically trained, not an anaesthetist, uh, in that difficult environment with a physiologically abnormal patient, uh, to try to uh, resuscitate, intubate anaesthetised, look after somebody. And then the next question is, what do you do then? Uh, You need to get back to Earth. Um, And that's a pretty dynamic process uh, involving lots of high G acceleration uh, as you uh, re-enter. So it's a a pretty tough proposition. And that's just from the space station. If you're further away, then that gets much harder. Um, So I was interested to see, though, that uh, in the last round of selection for the European Space Agency astronauts, about a year ago, they selected five new career astronauts and one of them is a Swiss anaesthetist. Uh, Interesting. Yeah. As far as I know, he's the first 
a government astronaut from that background. He, he's like all the astronauts. He's done other things too. He's been a paratrooper and a Hems doctor and, and all sorts. But uh, uh, I, I wonder if uh, if he'll have a role to play in deciding uh, what happens in the future as well. Yeah, so listening to your answer, one of the things that strikes me is it's very similar, not surprisingly, to uh, the sort of arrangements that we had when we took a large number of volunteers and did a load of science at at Everest Base Camp, um, particularly choice of drugs. And and the only difference we had is that actually it's not that complicated to get a helicopter and get someone out of base camp down to uh, more definitive care in a a proper hospital, whereas whereas the additional challenges of, of trying to get them out of space down to Earth... Yeah. Um, are, yeah, clearly huge. <laughs> There's actually a few years ago, uh, the Russians uh, sent an actress and a movie director to the space station to film footage for a movie, which is available now, uh, where she actually, in the movie, is sent there to uh, to perform life-saving surgery on a, on a cosmonaut in space. Um, so I guess there is... In theory, the possibility of sending somebody up there, and uh, if anybody's listening, uh, I'm available. <laughs> but um, that's probably not how it's really going to happen. Let's hope we don't have to face any of these challenges. <laughs> Brilliant. So I suspect your lecture today and, and this podcast will have inspired quite a lot of folk to, to follow up on those some of those links. I think it's probably time for us to draw to a close. So thank you so much, Tom. Thank you for your time. Thank you for a great discussion today and for a fantastic lecture uh, for the uh, Macintosh Professorship to the college. So um, for further details, uh, everybody who's listening, please go to the website. Uh, there are contact emailed addresses and useful links there. Uh, thank you once again, Tom. Brilliant day, brilliant lecture. 